Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Sam. So this week I am going to be telling you a story that happened in the 50s, which I think is probably one of the furthest back ones I've done. Not you Sam, you're always back in time. But um, yeah, it's probably one of the furthest we I've done and there's just so many kind of turns and names in the story so probably get a pen and paper and start writing stuff down so this is the story of the disappearance of Moira Anderson as always Samantha have you heard of this no I have not I don't believe well, I was really surprised that anybody had, but then my mum was like, oh, like, what are you doing? I was like, oh, I'm recording a podcast. And she was like, who is it you're doing? And I'd said, and she was like, oh, that was such a shame. So, like, she remembers it, even though mum wasn't born when it happened. I know. <laughs> so, yeah, so sit tight. There's a lot of names. There's a lot of, there's, like, another case that even gets, like, mentioned in this. So just brace yourself. Okay. And I'll try and keep it as kind of simple as I can name-wise. So, our story begins in 1957 in Coatbridge, which is just kind of outskirts of Glasgow, so nobody really knows where Coatbridge is, but it was actually known as the Iron Borough, as it was famous for its working class, and actually really well known for its low crime rate, because it was one of those places back then that just had such a tight-knit community, they all knew each other, looked out for each other, like, you've heard about these communities before, that, like, people are like, oh, we didn't lock our doors, they probably didn't even shut them, like, it was... (laughs) so so like the way they speak about it like kids all went around alone like they went to school on their own they didn't need parents because it was like so safe they could all play each other's houses like everybody knew everybody kind of thing and it was just like a really nice kind of friendly place to be which was good the church was a really big part of this community as well I think everybody went on a Sunday and like you know the minister would like pop around to your house one of those kind of places. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, this is the fifties as well, mind. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So it was a bigger thing. So yeah, like that's really nice. So just as I said, it was a really really safe place. The morning this happens is the twenty third of February in nineteen fifty seven, and it was a freezing freezing cold morning, and actually known because it was snowing and actually turned into a blizzard blizzard later on, which we don't really get many blizzards in Scotland but like the whole town came to like a halt and it was like that bad like a few miles away there was a football game and it was Airdrie versus Air United and the game was actually stopped early due to the weather conditions so do you know like I'm not saying like that shows how bad it was but you're kind of getting to the gist that like football couldn't be played because there was such heavy weather. Now as I said earlier this is a disappearance of a girl called Moira. So Moira was 11 years old in 1957 and she was born Mary McCall Anderson but she's just known as Moira and she was born on the 31st <laughs> of March 1945. She's the second of three daughters so she's got Janet who's her older sister by two years and they looked so alike like people would say that they were twins like they actually mixed themselves up honest you know like it was one of those where you were like is that was that her is that Moira is that Janet that kind of siblings and then there's Marjorie who's four years younger than Moira so they're quite close ages and their parents are mum Marjorie and dad Andrew but they were actually called Spars and Maisie the parents as well I don't really know why um 
but the Andersons <laughs> were well known and lived in a tenement flat and they were hard working and just like a generally liked family. Moira had blue eyes and like light hair, but she was a kind of known to be a tomboy. She was very streetwise and independent. And again, like her parents and family, she was well liked. She inherited her parents' work ethic and she worked every morning before school doing her milk rounds for Rankin's Dairy. Um, and she would, you know, like push the like crates of milk around and actually do the milk rounds and then would go to Coat Dykes Primary School. And then she, after school, would run errands for a lady called Mrs. Bruce, who was just an old woman. And she'd like, you know, go and get the stuff. And she actually got paid for these jobs. And she would save this money into like a bank account. So, you know, she had like a very normal kind of school life. You know, she was into swimming. Like, you know, she would go like, yeah, again, they got the bus to the pool, him and her, her and her older sister themselves. Like parents didn't take them. As I said, that kind of community. So on the morning of... I've lost the date because I've got so many notes. Sorry, on the morning of the 23rd of February, she had gone to the limb centre with her dad. So her dad's actually got an amputated leg. So she went to the limb centre with him and got home at about 11 o'clock. And she saw her best friend, Elizabeth, as she does most weekends. And they were just like playing outside, like kind of playing on the pavements. And the snow began falling as we were skipping. So they like tie like a skipper note to a lamppost so they can like take turns because there was only two of them. Um... But the snow started falling, so her mum was like, right, come in, because it is ridiculous. You stand outside skipping, it's snowing. So both girls went to their separate houses, and Moira went to her grand's to help run errands. So her grand at the time had a called Asian flu, I think, and her granddad was actually in hospital, and he was dying, unfortunately. Um, so the parents were going to visit with her older sibling, or I think it was the older sibling, definitely the younger sibling, and the other sibling was away. I don't want to like quote exact, but the siblings were gone. So Moira went to her grand's with her cousins. So she was actually going to visit her grand, run some minutes for her grand, and then she was going to the cinema to see guys and dolls with her cousin. So she arrived oh, at her yeah. grand's, and there was her uncle Jim. Now Jim actually still lived with the grand and granddad. I'm not too sure how old Jim was, um, but the cousins hadn't arrived yet. And he was planning on making dinner, but didn't have butter for a sauce. So he asked Moira to go out. So she, he gave her like the exact money and said, you can walk to the shop and get it and come back. Now, as I've said, it was snowing, but this was the like local co-op. And it's like no more than a five minute walk. It's just around the corner. She knows this area well. It's where her gran is. She goes all the time. And it was actually her mum's birthday coming up. So she was like, while I'm there, I'll get a birthday card from my mum. You know, kill two birds one stone. So she left and she was all wrapped up. So she had a big school coat on. She had a big woolly blue hat with red bands on it and a dark blue scarf. And off she went. And her uncle Jim had said to her, like, don't doddle. So she had to go straight there, get stuff and come home. When the cousins then arrive at the Grand Jim's region, because Moira hasn't came back. And as the kind of evening starts to go on, he was getting a bit anxious as Moira still hadn't came back. The cousins then went to the cinema to basically see if she was there because, you know, she's quite independent. So it could be that she's actually bumped into somebody, has actually forgot what her errand was and then has been like, oh, it's time to go to the cinema. So she's just gone. That was one of the kind of things that they had thought. So they went to the cinema and the cinema was full. It was fully packed out and she wasn't there. They then went to the Theatre Royal and saw a film and they just assumed they'd completely missed Moira at this point and that she's gone back to her grand's. So the cousins just went back to their own home. However, Moira hadn't returned to her grands. So their uncle Andrew then appears at the door, which was Moira's dad, 
looking for her and like couldn't believe she wasn't there it was like she knows this area well like how she ended up lost on like her way to the cinema like this doesn't make sense so around midnight Moira's dad um, Andrew decides to go to the police station and report her missing now the police actually in comparison to nowadays just seem to like get right on it and the managers of all the local cinemas in the area are actually called in their homes and asked to go back to the cinema and check that she wasn't in the building somewhere the library oh, was wow. called yeah yeah the library was called she was a really big reader so they wanted to check if she had maybe like snuck into the library and just like sat and read like families homes were all called like all of her family members being like so anyway she's with you so anyway she's with you nothing at all the following day police and local volunteers went out looking for her and all the parks in Coatbridge and Airdrie especially Dunbeth was checked because she actually walked past that quite often schools were open remember this is a Sunday so the schools were actually open to check she hadn't gone inside the schools and so were like garages etc and because this was like a mining town they went down mine shafts to check that she hadn't fallen down somewhere and had just gone and been playing around now they obviously start looking at Leeds and the co-op were adamant they hadn't seen her so then we know she hasn't even made it to the shop like they knew her well as we said it's a small town they would have known if she had came in um news spread but it's slow like you know there isn't like nowadays you can get word of mouth out on facebook you can get it on twitter but it's 1957 it's not going anywhere fast so on tuesday the 26th of february the daily record put it on the front of their page and posted the route she took and her mum Maisie believed that she had been taken and actually posted that in a statement in the paper um, and said like she wouldn't run away as like her mum's birthday, well, her birthday was coming up and Moira's birthday was actually coming up at the end of the month as well, obviously. So she was like, she just isn't the type of person that would run away, especially when like she's got a birthday coming up, like simple as that. On the 28th of February, so that's like two days later, the paper posted like a heartfelt plea from her dad, basically just begging like for her return, just saying they want her home safe. Like, they're not bothered who did it, etc. They just want her home safe. A couple of days later, on the 2nd of March, unfortunately, her grandfather actually passed away in hospital, which, as you can imagine, like, adds to the family's, like, grief and stress that they already, stress, sorry, that they already have. After the funeral, like, hopes began to start fading on finding Moira. Like, witnesses came forward, but, you know, like, it was... There wasn't much to see, you know, a woman named Mrs Tycross came forward and said she saw Moira walk into the shop as she was out in her garden like clearing a path of snow she waved at Moira and Moira actually asked her if the bus had gone and carried on which where's she going like do you know she's meant to be yeah, going for butter so yeah so mm-hmm. so that's the kind of first inclination I was like okay um, as I mentioned earlier the football game was abandoned but this also then became noted because there'd be large crowds of football supporters that would be around so they appealed to the football supporters and said like if anybody saw her walking to the shop not walking to the shop waiting for a bus can you let us know and out of all the people in the football there was nobody that saw her nobody had saw her at all now her father Andrew Anderson said she just wouldn't go off with a stranger like she just wouldn't but he had a feeling that she'd been picked up by someone in a car now obviously her uncle Jim was the last known man to see her and he was questioned multiple times and the community basically talked like he was involved and just suspected it. They say this happens a lot, that a lot of people know they're killers or they're kidnappers and it was just unfortunately that he was the last person to kind of confirm seeing her. Now I know we've got a witness saying, you know, 
they saw her walk into the shop looking for the bus, but like the neighbours don't even know that, so they're suspecting it. What annoyed a lot of people at the time as well and was a bit confusing is the police didn't do a door-to-door. Like a resident actually said he was waiting for the police to come as he lived with two single men at the time and he was a single man, but they didn't actually check and they lived within distance from his house, to, like from the, um, the grand's house, sorry, to the shop, but they didn't check and the police basically decided to wait for people to come forward instead of going looking for it, which unfortunately wasn't the case. Now they had a suspect and this suspect was a local man named Ian Simpson. Now, Ian Simpson was known in the community because he had learning difficulties and the police brought him in because his sister lived right next door to the co-op. So they thought if he was visiting his sister, this might actually have something to do with it. However, he had a really strong alibi. He was on a trip with the tutorial army and had many witnesses and sister confirmed that he wasn't at his house. So there was actually nothing about him. Now, this has absolutely nothing to do with this case, but I'm going to take like a pause and Moira Anderson and just tell you a little bit more about Ian Simpson because I kind of just read into this and I honestly can't believe the wild turn this whole story takes. So in 1960 Ian Simpson hitched a lift from the Cairngorms from a 30-year-old electrical engineer from Leeds called George Green. Now they're obviously in the car together just you know from the Cairngorms back to here. It's a bit of a long drive you chat about stuff blah blah and they begin arguing about religion. So Ian Simpson pulls out a gun and shoots George Green. Dumps his body what? inside of the Cairngorms, keeps the car and carries on. A few years later, he returns to Scotland and gives a lift to a 20-year-old Swedish student, Hans Gimme. And after an argument about religion, he shoots him as well. Like, he yeah. used to stop bringing up religion. Right, Samantha, this is about to take an even bigger turn. Like, I actually can't believe this, right? He was captured and obviously charged, but he just escaped the death penalty, which was hanging in Scotland at the time due to the fact he had a learning disability. And he went to Carstairs in 1962. Now, in 1976, he was actually killed in Carstairs in the infamous crime when Robert Moan and Thomas McCulloch, known as the Dundee school killers, escaped Carstairs and they killed a guard, a policeman and him. They scalped him and left his scalp on a chair. Now, for anyone that's thinking, like, hold, hold, hold on, Dundee school killers, why have you not done an episode on this? I'm just going to give you, again, we're going to take another side note, and I'm just going to give you a really brief description on this. So, basically, this was two guys. So, it was Robert Moan. Robert Moan committed a crime. In 1967, he went into a girls' needlework class at St John's School, and he basically subjected a 14 and 15-year-old pupil and a pregnant teacher to like this like one and a half hour like kind of random like hostage situation. He then shot the teacher, raped one of the girls and sexually assaulted another. Now he was put in jail where he met Thomas McCulloch, sorry, the other co-offender who I'm not 100% sure of his crimes. And they were basically lovers and they managed to escape Carstairs. But on their way out and escaping, they killed a guard, a policeman and they actually killed Ian Simpson. So that's what? just a complete side note to the man that was accused of this, but he was never charged with Moira's murder or kidnap or anything. He had absolutely nothing to do with Moira at all. Wow. What but a wild side note. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So he was ruled out, so they started looking at other leads and basically all sightings were dead ends, really. A woman said that she had heard screeching brakes and like a car sped off, but they dismissed the story like, do you know, like she could have been like this woman was like, oh, maybe she's been hit and hidden because like 
there was this massive like car breaking because when they assessed it like first like she couldn't actually see the view she was describing like it was impossible to see that view from our house and also she said the car skidded and you heard the tires screech on the tarmac it was snowing hun there you go <laughs> so that's what they said it was snowing a car wouldn't skid like if it was going to skid it's going to slide family said that they saw it at a local fair but like nothing came of this someone called the police saying they saw a girl dragged in a van four miles away and they managed to track this van and stop it in Gretna, which is 100 miles away, and it was actually a young female hitchhiker who had happily got in the van. So there's no leads, and unfortunately the suspect falls, the suspicion sorry, falls back onto the family, and it goes back to Uncle Jim again. They basically start, in March the 5th, they search their holiday cabin in the country. There's nothing there. A woman now says that she saw a girl in Greenock, and they get, she gave such an accurate description, they actually searched Greenock and like the ships in the port. Um, there was another lorry driver in Doncaster said he saw a girl like her with two guys getting into a van all of these leads came to nothing so I think it is like you know when someone goes missing they just start seeing her everywhere because this was all over really they start beginning to piece together her movement so three people saw her go the opposite direction and get on a bus and she walked across like a waste ground where she then slipped and fell now a woman saw the small window so James Ingalls was stood in a tenement door waiting for the bus because obviously it's snowing. His bus arrives and he sees Moira at the bus stop and he jumps on this bus but he said there was another bus behind and he's not sure if she got on that bus. And then was a, oh, there was a woman on this bus who knew Moira and said she did get on. She smiled at her but she didn't see when she left. <sighs> so Where is she going? I know, so much information and I don't get firstly why she's on the bus. The bus conductress was like unable to help and she was then seen by a fourth witness and said she was kicking the ground and looking as if she was waiting for somebody. Now, by this point, like police are starting to give up hope. There's so many witnesses saying they've seen her, but no one seems to see her disappear. And she occasionally gets a small column in the papers and her parents got all the birthday presents she would have wanted for her birthday at the end of March, but nothing really new came about it. On the 18th of May, three months later, BBC finally broadcast a photo of her on, he, on TV and the Glasgow Herald Post reported that this brought absolutely no response, nobody, from it going on to the BBC in the 50s, do you know? The family and locals began growing, growing impatient and this is when the inquiry starts to face some criticism. The first 24 hours especially are so important in a missing person case, but they were saying, according to some, like, certain steps were completely missed, like, no door-to-door was done, it wasn't well publicised, the canal, the local canal wasn't checked. Authorities said, like, oh, it was too overgrown to be checked, but, like, it still should be checked. Her friend Elizabeth, who she was skipping with, wasn't even spoken to. Police asked for Glasgow CID to be involved, that was never done. The police also said BBC refused to broadcast the picture of her because they said they don't like doing stuff like that with posting pictures of missing children however the BBC came back and then said they weren't asked until the day they did it so really the investigation becomes to stop and actually unfortunately became a bit of like a legend in Scotland like one of those like mystery like like you know it starts creating like far-fetched theories like at one point you know they're saying that she was abducted and killed by like Peter Manuel he was in prison at the time so like there's no way like in fact the police actually tried to pin it on Peter Manuel but he was like I'm doing 18 years in prison like it definitely wasn't me 
seven years later in 1963, um, her mum saw Mandy Rice David on telly and actually believed it was her and came up with this massive theory that she was Mandy Rice Davies. Sorry. Do you know who Mandy Rice Davies is? Not a clue. Okay. So she is basically best known for like her association with Christine Keeler and the role in the, I can never pronounce it, the Profumomo Affair. Profumo Affair, which was basically a big like political scandal. Oh, right. Um, I don't know if you know it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so basically John Profumo, which was a Secretary of State for War, um, in Harold Macmillan's Conservative government had an extramarital affair with Christine Keeler in 1961 and this Mandy Rice Davis basically ended up involved because it discredited the Conservative government well I probably am describing this so bad there's going to be someone that knows loads of information about this and they're going to be like I you're can't. completely wrong <laughs> yeah they're going to be like I can't believe this is how she's described it but I honestly I do a crime podcast, I don't do a politics one. I read a bit into it today thinking I'd be able to like really easily describe it. I wasn't. So well, you've done well. Thanks. Thank so you. yeah, if anyone actually knows exactly <laughs> what happened in that, please let me know. But I obviously tried to read in it today and I was like, right, back to the crime. Um unfortunately a couple of years later, Mrs. Anderson actually passes away in 1977 and then Mr. Anderson actually dies in 1982, aged 85, not knowing what happened to Moira. So, really, this is when, like, it stopped. Nothing happened. They just kind of accepted fate that, like, they were never going to know what happened. So, 30 years this case goes cold. And then on Friday the 7th of February 1992, a lady named Sandra Brown returns to Coatbridge after the death of her grandmother. Now, she grew up there a few streets from Moira, actually, and was similar ages to her younger sister, Janet. And okay. she really wasn't looking forward to going back to Coatbridge. And this was mainly because she didn't want to see her dad, Alexander Garthshore. Now, he moved to Leeds in 1965 and actually abandoned her, her mum and her two brothers. And basically, to describe him best quickly, like he was really inappropriate and emotionally and physically abused her. Um, so like the kind of thing he would do is he would take them so like a story she'd said was like in the summer of 1966 he like went and like took her and her two friends and like parked his car and gave Sandra money to go and buy ice cream and him and the two friends which were aged between seven and nine would wait in the car now she went to get ice cream and actually realized how far away it was and she returned a while later and saw that the car windows were all fogged up and when she got to the car the dad came out and so did the girls and all of them had their clothes off and he played this game with her where he would take off her clothes and rub his bearded face on her. So this had happened before with oh. other friends and like he would make her play like hide and seek with them and like he would take her to places that were harder to find while people were looking for them. He would then be inappropriate. Now, as she got older, she like hated being around him and her friends obviously drifted from her. And one of her best friends, Elizabeth, actually said that like, her parents said that they weren't allowed near her or her house. So Sandra found new friends and would begin finding like excuses to keep her dad away from her friends. Cinema managers in the local area actually like knew him as like the local pervert because he would like sneak in and try and sit next to young girls during the movie and like touch them. So like everybody knew he was just a bit of a dodge guy. In 1957 to 1959, he actually spent time in hospital. However, Sandra actually found out he was doing two years in prison for having sex with a 13 year old girl, her babysitter. And she, oh he was 36 years old. Yeah. 
So he had sex with oh, the babysitter okay. and it was kept like this dark secret for like 30 years. Like she didn't know. Like her dad, Alexander, lived in Leeds. Like they hadn't spoken in 27 years. But when she went to her grand's and she decided to confront him, then she was like, I'm just going to basically ask him what happened. But firstly, she like asked her mum why she was kept in the dark. The mum got defensive, basically, off this ex-husband who left her, but never mind, and was, like, blaming the girl. I was like, oh, she was, you know, she was known as a tart who slept with all the local bus drivers. No. Bus drivers. What? Just remember, the bus. Yeah. So, the family gathered at the Grands and she basically sees her dad and she's very good about it. Like, you know, she basically has to speak to him in an empty room and basically asked why she didn't know and he said like oh her name was Betty and she's like okay like that was a babysitter and he's like nobody gave me a chance nobody gave me a fresh start and he then turned around and said your mum and gran forgave me but my own father never did he would never forgive me for the Moira Anderson thing she's obviously like "Hmm? what like what so he got out on bail however like he was out on bail at this time and the grandfather always just blamed him and basically said to go to the police and tell them what he did to Maureen Anderson and the dad's like I told him I had absolutely nothing to do with her but I was the driver of the bus she took so I was the last person to see and speak to her and Sandra was obviously like this isn't where I thought this was going to go um, and like this was obviously quite a shock to her and she obviously remembered this like you know as I said she was the same age to the sister this isn't a massive community as I said they're all quite tight-knit so a girl going missing was already shocking enough so of course she's going to remember it she asked her dad if he was ever interviewed by police and he was actually and he told them the same story and Sandra was like there's just something not there so she called her aunt Margaret who's her mum's sister and asked if she ever remembered her dad being questioned about Moira Anderson and obviously if you phoned up, do you know what I mean? Your aunt and was like, tell me something that happened in the 50s. You'd be like, pfft. Um, and she tried to remember and she was like, oh yeah, I was actually there when he told your mum that he was going. Like he just came in and was like, look, don't play out my dinner. I need to go to the police um, to be interviewed. Now, as you can imagine, he's out on bail for the situation with the babysitter. So this woman's like... And can I also say, how could he drive a bus if he was on bail? <laughs> Who's he getting a job? I'll get the let him keep his job. I'll get to oh, that later. Sorry, sorry. So basically, like, you know, this mum's like, what is it? And he was like, nah, it's casual. Like, I'm going to be interviewed. Like, you know, it's just I was the bus driver. And a woman had told police, like, he was the bus driver. And they'd heard him say, hi, Moira. Eh, hi, Moira, sorry. But he said it was to a different Moira. It was to a girl called Moira Liddle, who was known, like, from all the buses. So everyone knew Moira Liddle. Like, she got on the bus all the time. And we'd give him, like, sweeties, etc. So his dad, and especially his mum, but his, no, sorry, especially his dad, his mum as well, but definitely his dad, really struggled to believe it wasn't him. And, like, Alexander said he was innocent, but his father actually went on to him one day, got a crowbar and pulled up his kitchen, as Alexander just had his kitchen renovated, and got new flooring from, like, Nelson and Cleland, which is a wee shop in the area, got a new sink, and basically this dad ripped off all the panels, checked all the cupboards, checked all the family homes, checked the boots of the car, checked the bus, and found absolutely nothing. However, remained convinced and just kept telling him to go to the police and tell them what he'd done with the body. Sandra told her mum, like, she would have gone to the police if the police had interviewed her. However, the police never spoke to her or her mum. So Sandra basically contacted, like, an like an old police officer that she knew. I think they were friends. Like, I think it was like a detective friend called Billy McCloy. So it was just as a pal. It wasn't like a, 
like scouted at an old police officer and basically just like you know he had confirmed that in the original investigation they ruled out the sites of her boarding buses and she just asked him to check if her dad was interviewed however like he explained look it's in the archives i have to have a very good reason i can't just turn up at a police station and be like hello can you show me all your archives on this case and he advised her to go to the police but she was like you know if what I'm saying is true there's there's no way police are going to have missed this so then two police officers actually came and visited her um, Jim McEwen and Bobby Glenn and basically Billy McCloy her friend I think had gone to them and said and they took this large box basically named Moira Anderson 1957 which was all the case files from this case um, and he basically told her straight like look I have gone through all these files and there is no trace of there ever being an interview with your dad so Alexander was no never, never interviewed by police what he can say was there's a 100% confirmed sighting of her in a bus after the last time she was seen however they did not make that public at the time he handed her a file and read through like this handwritten statement from a man named James Ingalls who saw her at the bus stop as he sheltered another bus stop he confirmed he saw them as he knew the Anderson girls and said, look, I know that they all look alike, but there was no doubt. Like, I've got the girls mixed up before, but there was no doubt it was Moira, which is obviously confirmed because one of them was away and the other one was at the hospital. So it was the only one that could have been getting on a bus at that time anyway. Now, they put this and like other statements aside and there was a statement as well from a Mrs. Chammers who said they saw her board in the bus and sitting next to the driver and chatting. She said that she couldn't be sure when she got off, but she got off before Moira. She knows Moira stayed on. They didn't reveal publicly that a third local witness, a woman just peering out of her window, um, saw a little girl playing amongst the garages and she fell and like picked herself up but was like looking around as if she had lost something, like checking her pockets, like maybe money. And a bus arrived and the woman watched and then when the bus drew off from the stop, everyone was gone, including the little girl. Now the, bu- the bus leads had been dismissed but three witnesses now are saying she got on a bus. Like, that doesn't make sense if there's these statements saying she got on a bus. So they handed her like another file and it said that two officers had gone to speak to the driver and the conductress of the bus and it stated that neither of them like had said that she got on the bus. Like, do you know what I mean? There was no note to confirm or deny that it was Alexandra Gatshore, but it basically says that like this girl did not get on the bus. Now the girl then, the police officer in McEwen basically asked her a question. He asked if her father was part of the Freemasons, which he was. Oh now, the membership of his Masonic Lodge was over 90% police officers. Now, she obviously, the box of the files, and she asked if they're going to be reopening this case, to which they said the inquiry was never closed, but it was never classed as a murder investigation, only ever a missing person. In December 1956, Gatshore was... That was when he was arrested and charged with sexual crimes against children. And it was actually his father that got him out of bail. Oh, bail, sorry. Baxter family were convinced that's the bus company drove for to let him keep his job. And in the January, they let him start driving the buses again. It was three weeks after that Moira goes missing. Three months later, he was then sentenced for his 18 months. So he was out for the period of time driving buses when Moira went missing. That's what you'd asked me earlier. Um... So he missed the search for her. He was in a cell. He dis- he was dismissed really as he was known as actually quite a nice bus driver who dropped local ladies off at their house, spoke to kids and instead they actually focused on the local disabled man as a suspect. Then he obviously went to jail. So he was gone. Sandra and this officer McEwen believe that 
do you know, he is a suspect. And on the 30th of April 1992, they began looking for where possible locations of her body could be. Now, they looked at a map of the area and focused on like the bus route where the sightings of her were and they took into in consideration obviously the weather like if you've got a body you're not going to check loads of the snow you're not going to dump that kind of far like close as you can and obviously Coatbridge has got locks it's got marshland it's got mining pits it's also got like the Mockland Canal which was the length of the town that's the one remember they said they didn't search Sandra spoke to her cousin and basically had gone round to this cousin's that she had and they'd had dinner and she basically eventually asked if her father had made sexual advances on her as a child and she confirmed that she had when she was six. And the cousin admitted that there was a time in the summer of 1962 when they were all out with like Sandra's parents, her own parents, and Gatcho was there, and they were all like out having a picnic. And he lured her into this dark garage and basically assaulted her. And her sister walked in, so stopped it really. But this was during like a picnic, so he has like no shame. So like the cousin then told the mum, and she was taken into the house and basically reported. Uh, told to never repeat things like that again so the family knew and the family described him as like an over friendly pest so like they knew and they just distanced themselves from him instead of actually going to the police or you know looking at things that were happening around and going like hmm maybe he's involved she urged her cousin to go to the police and I think they did I think her and a few other cousins did but while away from the cousin side the investigations now will say opened up again but ex-police that were there at the time wouldn't give statements or interviews about it um one did however and said there was tons of complaints about him especially in the park as he was always seen like lurking around bushes he was like known to be like a flasher um but he definitely confirmed as an investigator working on the case at that time he was never once interviewed regarding moira now some of sandra's family began turning against her saying like they would never speak to her again if she's going to go up against like her dad and only a few of the cousins really supported her. And when Sandra told her mum, her mum was like horrified, which like, I, don't, I just don't, I don't really get that. Like as well, like I think, especially seeing as like, it sounds horrible. Like I'd understand if they were still together, but like the dad left her, like, as I said, you know, and the <coughs> mum screaming, like he wasn't involved. He was already interviewed. They cleared the interview to which obviously Sandra's like, he lied about the interview. Mm-hmm. But I think her mum and he's already in... like a sex pest. Yeah, but like I think the mum was clearly in denial. Yeah, clearly in denial. Yeah. So in 1992, four of the cousins actually made official statements. And that is when Jim um, McEwen, sorry, the police officer, decided to go south and goes to Leeds, where Gatshaw is living. So he puts allegations to him and the Moira situation and shows him a photo of Moira. And when Gatshaw is given a photo of Moira, it's like a school photo, he looks visibly shaken. And he just looks at the photo and goes like, Moira. And then basically says she looks a lot older in that photo. Then he remembered. No yeah, so he just like says her name and looks creepy at this photo, which gives me... Really... Yeah, I was like... Ugh. Um, Sandra's mum is basically spoken to and he, she said he was a really nice, hard-working guy when they first met and told about how he said he'd went to be interviewed and the police had just ruled them out she also mentioned the fact that someone had saw him say hello to a moira but it was obviously moira little remember i told about her earlier mm-hmm. the police ran checks and the voter registers and like checked down all the little families living in that area and no little family had a daughter named moira so there was no moira little she didn't exist so basically there wasn't actually enough evidence after all that i've told you to charge him so the case goes cold again no now, way. ten years later, on the tenth of October two thousand and three, 
Sandra gets a call from a reporter um, as she'd written a book about the Moira situation and he informed her that someone had made a deathbed confession. I actually, <laughs> I don't know if it was just the wording or whatever, but like I was like, oh, like what does a deathbed confession mean? But obviously I know what yeah, deathbed confession is now is when someone is literally dying. <laughs> so I was just like, yeah. ah, get you now, get you now, okay. Because I was honestly like, what um and basically she was like oh my god my dad's dying but it wasn't her dad it was a man named alec keel he had been in peterhead secure uh, he had been in peterhead prison secure unit for sexual offenses and had been a formal cellmate of alexander gashore's friend from the buses Jim Gallagher, basically, I think it is. And in 1997, he was given a 10-year sentence for molesting a child in a lift. He was a friend of Gatshore's when Moira vanished. However, he was someone else as well. He was the babysitter's older brother. Gall- no. Yeah. Gallagher had stomach cancer, Parkinson's disease and cataracts and basically dictated a confession letter and gave it to Alex Keel and told him to give it to authorities after his death. And he died in April 1999. It revealed that currently, well, not currently, sorry, it revealed in the 50s at the time that Moira went disappearing. Dis- oh, again. It revealed that in the 1950s at that time when Moira had gone missing, that there was a massive paedophile ring operating in the area, which contained many like known names. There was Fred West, which of course everyone knows who Fred West was. Also Thomas Hamilton who was the Dunblane gunman. There was judges, mm-hmm. police officers, public figures, etc., which maybe explains why Gatcher wasn't questioned or linked. So when, you know, Sandra basically travels to Leeds and confronts them, and Gatcher blurted out what he knew. He said he hadn't murdered her, but he did get off the bus with her when the relief driver took over. And Moira had told him that she was going to buy a birthday card for his, her mum, which you had to have spoken to her to know that information. Police questioned him on the abuse of over 120 children and he says like he just basically can't control the feeling. It just overcomes him, which is, he's a typical paedophile, really. Do you know, that's what a lot of them say. Police got a recording of this conversation, as she recorded at the time, but they didn't actually take it any further. Alexander Gatshore died in 2006, aged 85, after telling Sandra he regretted everything to do with Moira and he took all he knew about her to his grave. Now, in 2013, Sandra actually won a six-year legal battle and got the permission to exhume Sinclair Upton's grave, who was a friend of her father, who died similar to the time that Maura died. And his graveyard was on her dad's bus route. Now, if you're the same as me, you're probably going to be like, okay, where is this lead going, right? No. So when Gatch... Yeah, like, this is a bit of a random one, right? But when Gatcher got his job back, a fellow driver said, like, you must have a lot of friends. And Gatcher said he didn't, but that Sinky had done him a huge favour. And people believed that that huge favour was dying, so there was a grave to put Moira's body in. And they believe it was put there prior to the funeral. So the funeral was on a Tuesday, but the grave was excavated the previous Saturday. So it could have been there so the checks in 2007 had found an anomaly considered consistent sorry of a child being buried there so they opened up the Sinclair's grave and they actually dug up the family plot which had like eight but they found nothing linking to Moira 
recently police opened a case like no i say recently i suppose kind of thousand dollars uh, they opened up a case of suspicious drowning of a four-year-old john codden who was found naked in like the monkland canal nearly a year after moira disappeared and also in 1959 betty nichols also re- the reopened she was carried off and never seen again either so there's all these signs that I think the paedophile ring story is unfortunately true. Gatcher was in jail when both of those situations happened. But as I said, if it's a massive ring, it could be anybody. Do you know, they also did a 100 metre stretch of the Monkland Canal, but had no trace of her. Now, in January 2014, the Crown Office decided, among, like, they just went with it and named Alexander Gatshaw as Moira Anderson's killer. Lord Advocate Frank Mulholland QC basically paid tribute to the cold case unit, the police, the campaigners, and obviously the family that have now been waiting over half a century for answers. Now, what they basically said was, is um, Gatshaw was not found guilty, but there was enough to indict him. And if he was alive, he would have gone to a trial, which he was most likely being found guilty. Fresh evidence came again from two new witnesses that came forward at this court case, who basically had reasons not to come forward before, saying that, a girl had said that actually her and Moira were walking to the park and he had exposed himself to them in 1956. Another man actually said that he saw a man near a bus terminus dragging a girl that looked like Moira on the day she was kidnapped. Um, and during an ID like lineup of faces, he picked out um, Gatshore as the person that was dragging the child. And that is the end of the story of Moira Anderson, basically. So unfortunately, her body has still never been found. And there is no 100% this is what happened. And due to the fact it was so long ago and most of the main people involved have now died, I don't think it'll be anything we ever find out. Which is sad. But, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's so many twists and turns. and. Uh-huh. But, yeah, it's a sad one, isn't it? Yeah, I can't believe I've never heard of that one before, but... Mm. Yeah. it's mental though that once you get all these groups and things like like you say paedophile ring but even so just mention the masons and then oh, yeah the minute i read the word masons i was like oh in man that. yeah like, yeah no. yeah definitely oh. but no it was a really good one so also if you'd like to know about the robert moan thing let me know because we could also let us know sorry our um, instagram which is the crime pod underscore because that would be interesting an episode to do Mm-hmm. Um, about him and his partner and also just drop us a message if you have any idea about the Mandy Rice Davies thing and if you could please tell us about the Profumo affair yeah. <laughs> we would really like or link us to a podcast about that and that would be very helpful <laughs> yeah <laughs>